Our first scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah has a number of prophecies that relate to the Messiah, and uh, for this Advent season, we're reading through uh, a number of them, and uh, as you can see there, it's from the first part of Isaiah 12. Nathan is going to come and read it for us. Nathan, if you would. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Uh, for the next few Sundays leading up to Christmas, uh, we are moving to a few texts out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Luke tells us parts of the story that lead up to the birth of Christ. And so, kind of classic, what we'd call Advent text. Again, Advent means coming. And so, what happened before Christ came over the next week or two? That's what we're looking at. Today is the story of the angel, uh, Gabriel, visiting Mary, all the things he says to her. Next week, we'll talk about Mary's song that she sings. It's called the Magnificat. Um, and then on, on the 24th, we'll be doing some more Christmassy type text, but just helping to prepare our hearts. So we're going to be reflecting on this text, Luke 1, 26 to 38. But before we preach on it, I'm going to invite Tyler to come and read it for us. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Tyler. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's around this time of year that we hear the now famous prophecy, A chosen one shall, be, shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance in the force be restored. That's right, I'm not talking about the prophecy uh, that precedes the birth of Jesus, but the prophecy that preceded the birth of Anakin Skywalker, the chosen one, the one who is going to bring balance to the force, born of the will of the force to a special mother, destined to rule the galaxy, you Star Wars heads, you guys know what I'm talking about. Now, I raise this point, obviously, somewhat jokingly, 
But I do recognize for many people who are not sort of normal church people, uh, stories like the one that we just read about Mary and the angel Gabriel, they function essentially on the level of Star Wars mythology. A skeptic hears of the miraculous conception, no father, the angel, the angelic visit, and files that away with Star Wars, Marvel movies, Harry Potter, you know, whatever your particular flavor is. And I understand the skepticism. There are numerous miraculous parts to the story. Luke, the author who wrote it down, he has no intention of making the advent of Jesus easier to swallow. He insists you take Jesus and the gospel accounts at their most audacious. He's not going to water it down. There are angels, there's a prophecy, a virgin birth, a God-man who will rule a never-ending kingdom. See, often, culturally at least, Christmas gets sentimentalized into trees and lights and presents and Santa and a little sprinkle of Christmas cheer. Those things are fine, whatever. Uh, They just aren't found in the original Christmas. The story we have in front of us is far grittier, far more mundane, and really, frankly, far harder to believe than a jolly old rich guy just doling out some presents. Now, this story is sometimes called the Annunciation, which just means like the announcement to Mary by the angel Gabriel of all that's about to happen and all that it meant. And in contrast to the song, Mary did know things, uh, not because she, you know, Sherlock Holmes her way into knowing things, uh, but because an angel told her things beforehand. This is mainly how she knows it. And as we remember this world before the Messiah came, we kind of gather around the story. We, get, we peer over Mary's shoulder to hear about this child who will be born. So I want to take this text in, in four different parts. We'll first talk about God's favor. It's mentioned a couple times there, if you, if you heard that. Then a unique child, a unique birth, and then come on, we'll talk about Mary's response at the end, a humble response. First, God's favor. Now, we're actually picking up this story about Mary, if you notice even by the verse numbers. We're not right at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Something else has happened first, and I need to tell you about that, because it sets up this story. The first miraculous birth prophesied in the gospel of Luke uh, is not Jesus, but John. The first visit by an angel to a human is not Gabriel to Mary, but an unnamed angel to Zechariah, who was going to be the eventual father of John. This has all happened so far in chapter 1. But John is not miraculously conceived, but as far as we know, conceived in the normal way. But Elizabeth, uh, Mary's relative, is pregnant, but she's kept it hidden. She's told no one. And that's what we've kind of learned in verse 25, which immediately precedes this passage. It's not written there. We started with verse 26. But if you look, what does the Annunciation open with? In the sixth month. And you're like, June? Are we in June? No, 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 no. In, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. See, the Bible is not interested in counting time the way that I like to count time, maybe the way you like to count time, days, months, year. No, no. The most important timeline in the Bible is a timeline of what God is doing. So it's the sixth month of something God's already doing. Uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant when Gabriel is sent to Mary. Now, why do we call this, why am I calling this section God's favor? Well, because in, in the conception of Jesus, the miraculous conception, the direction of action is from God toward humanity. Over and over. God is the first mover. He is in, in the initiator. Nothing happens until he sort of you know, pushes balls, sets things into motion. And the first demonstration of favor is the sending of Gabriel. Okay, God sends Gabriel. And angels, despite their popularity, they're not that present in Scripture. You read the pages, you're like, 
There's not as many angels here as I thought I was going to find, at least in the narratives and stories. They show up in Abraham's life. He gets a couple uh, angelic visits. Uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he gets involved with the angels a little bit. But mostly they appear here at the beginning of Jesus' life uh, as a human, and they also show up a little bit at the, the resurrection and the ascension. But anyways, Gabriel sent from God. Let's think about how extraordinary that is. The God who made everything everywhere sends one of his very special messengers, one of the few actually named in the Bible, to a young woman in a small place with very little uh, seemingly to offer. Mary lived in Nazareth. Uh, it's a tiny village. Uh, it's, it's nowheresville, even to other Israelites, let alone to those of us who live halfway around the world. She's an obscure peasant girl, like probably not even blue collar, something like the working poor, subsistence farming, agricultural things. She was betrothed. That's like the one fact we know about her is that she's betrothed. It's a form of ancient engagement. It's a little bit more binding than our, than our modern ones. But the grace of God to do a work with a single poor young woman, probably just a teenager, is astonishing. It's hard to imagine any of the great people of our world, uh, you know, sort of condescending to do such a thing. I don't think any famous CEOs or whatever are doing this, but God makes the first move. Look at what the angel says if you look at verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. Uh, I wonder if Mary, when she heard that greeting, like, did she look around the room like, is there someone else the angel's talking to or whatever? Me, favored, outwardly, there's not much reason for Mary to believe she's favored. No riches, no status, no proximity to Jerusalem, the temple, religiously speaking, kind of insignificant. But God chooses to set his favor on whomever he will. The angel reassures her of this favor in verse 30, or tell, in verse 30 telling her, don't be afraid because you have found favor with God. God acts first to set his favor on Mary. And indeed, this is how God works throughout all the scriptures, that God acts first to love, to show favor towards a person or towards a people. Think of the opening pages of Genesis. When there was nothing God acts first to make something. God moves first. In the opening pages of Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved. They're groaning. They don't have any hope. They've been trapped there for hundreds of years. God intervenes. God begins to do something. When, when God uh, calls Abraham, Abraham's just living in, in, in Ur of Chaldea. God speaks and he calls him and he sends to the shepherd David, the smallest and youngest and sort of least impressive in his own family. God says, it's going to be you. You're going to be the king. And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sets his favor on whom he will. He moves first. Now, to be fair, the other side of this coin of favor is the confusion, the perplexity, uh, some of us or we sometimes feel, about those upon whom God does not set his favor. We don't know if Mary had sisters, we don't, or family or whatever. Surely there were other young women her age, you know, kind of kicking around. Why Mary and why not another? And in our own lives, why does God set his favor and grace on some and pass over others? How come some people find it very, very easy to believe, it's very obvious, and others cannot sense God's favor and love? Unanswered questions. Unanswered questions. The Bible does not speak to them, but I raise them because they are ours. And also because it reminds us of a God who acts in ways beyond us. His ways are not ours. His reasons are not ours. And it's sort of a fine human response to say, we don't know 
why God set his favor on Mary and not another. But we can rejoice when God does set his favor on someone. It's for their good. And in the case of Mary, not just bringing grace to her, but grace to an entire world. Mary finding favor with God, um, I mean, eventually it leads obviously through the cross and the resurrection, but it leads to, you know, Indian and Pakistani people finding favor with God and and Polish people finding favor with God. The the chain of events, the chain of grace set off by this angelic visit is, is amazing. But this is the pattern we see here right at the beginning. God acts first, God sends the angel, God finds favor in Mary. Okay, let's talk about part two. This unique child... What does Gabriel say to Mary? Well, first he has to reassure her. She's afraid and confused. She's greatly troubled. Did you catch that? Um, she's wondering what sort of greeting the angel might be giving. Uh, maybe she's thinking this could be bad news. Maybe the angel looks super intimidating. We, we don't know. But the first sentence from the angel doesn't really land. The angel kind of has to repeat himself uh, in verse 30. And then in verse 31, we kind of get to the substance of what the angel has come to say. That she will conceive and bear a son. We know that, or that's a familiar part of the story. But I want to take a quick look at all the things that will characterize this baby. Now, first, he will be named Jesus. Naming is extre- was extremely important to ancient people. Names had meaning. The, the names given by the parents uh, sort of set the direction of a person's life. And the naming rights were normally given to the father. It was a somewhat patriarchal culture. Uh, it was a great honor and privilege to name a child. Who gets to name Jesus? Not Mary. Not Joseph. He already has a name. He, he, he comes with a name built in, which means he comes with an identity. He has a direction for his life already that will not be bestowed upon him by his parents. They're not going to identify him as religiously gifted when he's five. Like, we're going to sign him up for something. You know, he, he has a direction and an identity already built in. He comes with a name. And more than that, he is the one who gives his name to everyone else, right? Everyone who comes to believe in him, what are they eventually going to become to be known as? Christians, little Christs, little Jesuses. It's his name that covers all of our names. We don't name him, he names us. We don't set the course of his life and tell him who he's going to be. He sets ours. We don't give him an identity, he gives one to us. He comes named. And now what does this name mean? It means God saves. That's what Jesus means. God saves. What will the direction and mission of the baby's life be? Salvation. Remember the the, the arrow of action? God toward us. God saving us through the work of Jesus. He will be named Jesus. Second, if you look in verse 32, he will be great. Uh, You probably have heard of the term GOAT, G-O-A-T. It's thrown around. It means greatest of all time, if you don't know how the kids these days are using it. And we'll say things like, you know, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. That's probably a dated reference. Or or Taylor Swift, you know, whatever. Uh, They're the GOAT. We know what it means to be greatest. We say this person or this thing is the greatest. It means to have no rival, to have no peer, that this person is standing alone at the top of their profession or whatever. Jesus will be great. Now, interestingly, Zechariah is also told by the angel that John will be great. And we don't have it here, but if you look in verse 15, the angel says John will be great, but then he qualifies it slightly, before the Lord. John will be great before the Lord. Jesus will be great, unqualified. John will be great in this particular domain before God, spiritually great. Jesus will just be great, period. He doesn't have a peer. He has no rival in his greatness. 
Third, he will be called Son of the Most High. Now, the Greeks and the Romans, they understood what it meant to be a son of the gods. They had Achilles and Apollo and Hercules and the Roman equivalents. Uh, These people understood, well, of course, gods and goddesses, they could conceive and bear children, sons of God, daughters of God. We understand this. The monotheistic Jews had no such conception. In fact, it was unthinkable. It was almost heretical. God was unapproachable. God dwelt alone in light. He reigned in majesty. He was high and lofty. And God has a son? God is something other than what we would say is like a strictly monotheistic. And we'll touch on more in in part three. But this great and high God is going to come close. The baby will be human and divine. A son of Mary, yes, but also a son of the Most High. And then fourth, still in verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. So not just a divine baby, a kingly baby. A baby to sit on a throne. And actually, if you look all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, 14, uh, God is making all these promises to the, the, the King David. And God promises David, oh, there's a descendant of yours who is going to come. And to this descendant, God says in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, Israelites, kind of since David, had interpreted this promise somewhat metaphorically. Oh, God will be fatherly towards him. And God's like, no, no, I meant that literally. I will send my own son to sit on David's throne. The true kingdom of Israel, it's going to be reinstated. It won't be like you think it's going to be, but it will be ruled forever by Jesus. There will be a new kingdom. But we have in just these few lines from Gabriel, this statement about Jesus' life purpose, as expressed by his name, the solitary greatness of Jesus, his divine nature, his identity as king. That's why I call him a unique child. Unbelievably lofty prophecies being made here. Let's say you could hypothetically marry off the two most impressive and powerful and accomplished people you can think of. You could get them together and have them produce an heir. And you're like, we're going to combine all the the most amazing attributes and we're going to produce the smartest, most beautiful, most charming, most driven, most genius baby you can imagine. Even if you could do that, you still wouldn't make predictions like this about that baby. Jesus defies the categories. And again, I kind of return to what I said at the start. Luke is not going to let you or I off the hook by claiming, well, you can have Jesus as an inspired teacher, as sort of just an extraordinary human. No, no, he is either God's very salvation, he's either great, divine, and a king, or it's just a big ruse. Luke squeezes down your options, and he forces you to choose a path. The identity of Jesus, it is the reason Christianity is what it is. We're not trying to follow clever social theories. But Christianity is about the advent, the coming of the God-man into history to bring stubborn people to salvation. This baby is no ordinary baby, but Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, let's look at part three, the unique birth. Now, I want you to try to imagine for a second that this was your very first time reading the story. And I know some of you have read the story dozens, hundreds of times. But if you just read up until the end of verse 33, you could have assumed that the way God was going to do this miraculous work was with a normal human baby, conceived and born in the normal way, and just sort of take a normal baby, but do something really special with him. 
And to be fair, in all the rest of the Bible, that's how it's worked so far. Uh, Again, Abraham and Sarah, barren for decades. They're promised a baby miraculously uh, because Sarah's beyond childbearing years. But the conception takes place in the normal way. Jacob and Rachel, same thing. Elizabeth and Zechariah from earlier in chapter 1, same thing. Sort of miraculous for different reasons, but normal conception. That's how God has worked so far. But this pattern presents a problem for Mary because she says... She's sexually inexperienced. She's unmarried. She has never been with a man. But all these promises, Gabriel, they're all about a baby. How are we going to get the baby? And I've read and, you know, read some critical comments from more skeptical sources about, well, these foolish early Christians, how could they have so easily believed a story about a virgin birth? Now that we moderns, now that we know so much more about conception, if they only knew what we now knew, they never would have believed this story. But look, Mary's question lets us know the ancients had a pretty good idea of where babies came from. They're like, we know it takes a man and a woman. The ancients were not in danger of naively believing Mary's story about the unusual conception. By the way, Joseph knew too, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph needs a visit from an angel as well to be convinced that Mary wasn't making it up. It's like, there's got to be another guy. It's the way these things work. He was going to break their betrothal until an angel says, hey, Mary's telling the truth. Mary, Joseph, all these others, they weren't naive about the facts of life. But where does Gabriel say, or is that how do, what does Gabriel say about how this baby will come about? If you look in verse 35, he kind of says it twice, says, or says it two ways. He says, first says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it's been used before in the scriptures. Actually, the, uh, I don't know if, you, if I asked you to guess. I don't know that you'd be able to guess this. It, that, that phrase is mainly used in the book of Judges. Uh, for instance, I'll give you one of the examples. Uh, Samson, the judge, you know, the really big, big, strong judge, he's about to go fight a bunch of Philistines, and in Judges 15, 14, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and he gets this incredible burst of strength. It says the ropes he's bound with melt off him, which is just this, this beautiful, uh, whatever, and he picks up a, a donkey boat and kills a thousand people. Anyway, it's kind of a wild story. You have to go read it for yourself, but it's not just Samson who the Spirit of God rushes upon to do something. It's Othniel, who like, who's Othniel? Jephthah, Gideon, and then in the early pages of, of, of the book of Samuel and, and Kings, King Saul, King David, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them to do something new and different and special for the people of God. So when this term sort of, when, when, when Luke kind of grabs this term and it pops up, you have to be able to think this person, Mary, is being specially set aside for some new kind of work that will benefit the nation. Gabriel does not sort of use this phrase willy-nilly, but something extraordinary and unique is happening. But then the angel uses a second phrase back in verse 25. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, this phrase we have no equivalent for. There's no place in the Old Testament where we can go looking and be like, oh, yes, it's kinda, we've seen this. Well, we can kind of guess this word overshadow means something larger is blocking or, or covering something smaller. But the best hint about what this means is this word therefore that follows the phrase. It tells us the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary leads to a holy baby being born, specifically the Son of God. What's Gabriel saying? Mary will become pregnant apart from normal sexual relations with a man. Jesus will be a genuine human, but he will also be holy. He will not inherit the sinful nature disposition the rest of us have. Human, yes. God, yes. Both boxes are checked. 
Now, here's something I didn't think about this week um, until that kind of makes this miracle all the more miraculous. Now, it's not my idea. I stole it from some commentary that I can't find now. Anyway, so just, just know someone smarter than me thought of this, but I really liked it. Scientifically speaking, it's possible in nature for animals to sometimes reproduce without sexual relations, even if, they, even if that's how they normally reproduce. There are certain animals that under certain kinds of pressure and conditions can actually bear young. It's never been documented in humans, but let's just assume for a moment it were theoretically possible that there was like a one in tr- a trillion chance that a, a spontaneous conception could occur. Let's just put that out as, as a possibility. Well, many of you know when making a baby, the, women always, the woman always contributes an X chromosome in the egg, and the male sometimes contributes X or Y, and, and what you get depends on if it will be a male or a female. So even if Mary had conceived in some sort of spontaneous one in a trillion, one in ten trillion natural fluke, there, the child could never have been a male, because there would have been no way to get the Y chromosome. It, it only could have been a female. So even the fact that Jesus is male signals to us, this is no fluke. It cannot happen. This is a miracle. God is doing something different and miraculous. Now, we aren't told the mechanics of how it all happened, but in the power of God, Jesus is human and divine. He could be the son of Mary and the son of God. He could be great and bring salvation, but he also had a liver and ten toes and kneecaps and all the normal human stuff. And indeed, only someone who is both God and man could accomplish salvation. It had to be this way. But let's talk about part four. We'll move to this. A humble response. Now, I I found it interesting, the emotional journey that Mary goes through in this passage. She starts out with being greatly troubled, being afraid. Remember that? She then gets confused, and she's like, I have some questions. (laughs) I want to understand the specifics. But she ends up in a humble place, calling herself, in verse 38, a servant of the Lord. Those words are easy to say, I am a servant of the Lord. Much harder to live out. Uh, In our society, service industry jobs are considered somewhat low status. They're for those who maybe don't have another work experience or if you're a teenager trying to get your first job or if you're new to Canada. I'm not denigrating that work. I'm just saying uh, the general perception in our culture is that because, I think in large part, It's hard to be treated like a servant. (laughs) It's hard to say, hey, you wait over there, and I'll tell you what I want, and when I tell you what I want, you go get it for me and bring it back to me. We don't want low status. We don't want to be treated like a servant. I want to be recognized for all my gifts. But Mary goes through fear and trepidation to confusion to saying, I'll do whatever God asks of me. I am the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever God asks of me. And my question this morning that I'd love for you to consider is, where are you at in that process? Some of us are sort of in that first part. We're still troubled by the Christmas story. <laughs> We're like, is this what Christians really believe? Particularly if you're here and you're a, a friend or a neighbor and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you're like, how do you base your life on these old, very difficult to believe stories? Or perhaps the story is fine, but you're troubled by a lot of the things that have been done in the name of Jesus. That's all right, to be confused, to be troubled. But the encouragement, of course, is we'll look at Jesus, what he is, not all all the things that have been done in the name of those uh, who claim to follow Jesus. And by the way, if you come back next week, as you look at Mary's song, it has some surprising truths about how the kingdom of Jesus actually works. It has bad news for those who claim to love Jesus but pursue wealth and power and status. 
But no matter where you come from today spiritually, I think all of us can ponder the question, am I willing to be a servant of the Lord? Am I willing to do what God asks of me? And what if he asks of you, like Mary, to serve him in a way that brings some degree of humiliation? Social estrangement. A pregnant, single woman in that time, not exactly celebrated. Or what if God asks you to endure in your life exactly as it is? What if it's just not going to get better? What if next week is a lot like this past week? Can you be a servant of the Lord if it just means I am going to have more of what I've already had? Are we willing to serve the Lord if it means greater loss of freedom, money, or friendship? And and I want to be clear. I'm I'm not saying always being a servant of the the Lord will mean losses, losses upon losses. There's profound joy in it. There's all sorts of great things in it. I'm just reminding you, reminding me, the choice isn't always that easy. Can we come and stand before the Lord with open, unclenched hands and just say, I am a servant of the Lord. Whatever he wants of me, I can do. But I'll leave you with just a a piece of good news. The good news is the Advent, it's Advent. Jesus is coming. He's on his way. His, his, His arrival has been announced. And he's coming for all those who are humble and servant hearted and stand ready for him like Mary. But he's also coming to make an appeal to the King Herods, to the Pharisees, to the disciples who very wildly, he's going to publish his love widely. His death will be enough for all if you accept it. But I would invite you today, stand with Mary, hear these prophecies about Jesus and receive him for who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you that in your, in your, your goodness and graciousness to us that, um, that this has been recorded for all time, that we can understand what the world was like before, what, what Mary was like before, what happened before Christ came. Help us to have humble hearts to receive what is written here and to live by it. And it's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.